Today on Blue 58, the Packers are on the field for OTAs, and we get to speculate wildly about what it all means. Truthfully, it probably means nothing, but we do have updates on at least one noteworthy storyline after today's OTAs. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. A lot of OTA-related stuff to get to today, starting with some personnel moves that affected who is on the field for practices this week. First and foremost, the Packers have signed running back Emmanuel Wilson, 5 feet 10 inches tall, 229 pounds, a middling athlete with a 6.83 relative athletic score. However, he does tick one major box for us as a running back. He is a mass mover. 4.55 in the 40-yard dash is really Pretty solid at the weight he's at. 229 pounds is nothing to sneeze at. If you remember back to our draft preview stuff, we talked about speed score when it came to running backs a lot. Getting over 100 in a speed score is really good. His speed score was 106.86, which means basically he's good at moving the weight he has very quickly. Small school guy, though. Undrafted this spring out of Fort Valley State in Georgia. Uh, spent some time with the Denver Broncos earlier this May, according to the Packers press release about signing him. Started his college career at Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Was reasonably productive, quite productive, in fact, as a, a small school college player. Now wears number 31 for the Green Bay Packers. Fort Valley State is in Georgia, if you're wondering. Another body for running back, and one guy with at least one noteworthy uh, athleticism attribute. He can run fairly well at the speed he's at. Corresponding move there, though, the Packers have released kicker Parker White, which means that the at least one of the special teams battles that we talked about last week is now over. I loved the kicker competition era in Green Bay. All seriousness, though, I would not be surprised to see the Packers sign another kicker. It looks like they're going for the multiple legs or I guess in the case of their long snappers, arms approach for their their specialist positions into training camp this year or throughout this offseason. I think we're probably going to have another kicker in camp at some point, if only just to, to have somebody else to look at. The Packers also made another move on the offensive side of the ball this week, which affected today's OTA's practice. The Packers signed wide receiver Jadakiss Bonds. Absolutely, positively elite name. Probably the best name on the Packers right now. Six foot three, two hundred and six pounds out of Hampton University in Virginia. Four eight six relative athletic score, no elite numbers other than height. He is currently the second tallest receiver on the Packers, though, so he's got that going for him. Last year, forty nine catches, eight hundred and fifty five yards, ten touchdowns for Hampton. Hey, another big body here. Corresponding move to that signing was the release of tight end Nick Gugamos. If you don't remember who that is, totally understandable. Just an offseason signing. He played at the very, very small D1 school of St. Thomas, which was at the time when I was in college still a D3 athletic program. They've expanded since then, but they are still on the smaller side for big-time college football. It is a bit of a hit for me. Uh, kind of ruins my dream of having an entirely tight end centric offense, but we will, we will keep our hopes up uh, that they are able to like continue their focus for um, this tight end focused offense in the future in Green Bay. It did look like the Packers opened in 12 personnel in their first, uh, first play of their, their team series or team period today. So the tight ends, they're on the way up in Green Bay, pretty exciting times 
for a guy like me. We'll return to OTAs here in a second for two storylines that I want to talk about, but we, we need to touch on some big news out of Green Bay. Well, not really so much out of Green Bay, technically, coming out of New York, where NFL headquarters are, but they've announced that something significant is coming to Green Bay. The NFL draft is going to be held in Green Bay in 2025. How good of an idea is this? I think it's actually a pretty cool idea. I know there are a lot of naysayers out there um, among the media, among other people who cover the NFL draft. I think anything can be good. That my well, we've talked about this before on the on the show. My favorite podcast is actually not sports related. It's a it's a comic book movie news show called The Weekly Planet, hosted by two Australian guys. If you know of that show, shout out to the other weekly wackadoos out there. But one of the hosts on that show consistently says when you know, like there's a trailer or like a, a pitch coming out for a movie, anything can be good. And I think that's just the attitude that, you know, preaching to the choir a little bit here, that I would ask people to take about an NFL draft in Green Bay. Because, yeah, it's not Vegas, it's not Dallas, it's not New York City, but that doesn't mean it's going to be bad. It doesn't mean it's not going to be entertaining. It doesn't mean it's going to be hard to get around. It does mean that it's going to be different than those other drafts, but different doesn't mean bad. And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things for people to do and see and experience in and around Green Bay. And I think it would be great for the NFL to embrace things being a little bit different as the draft moves around. If you're going to do the draft this way, not every draft has to look and feel the same. The common criticism I've seen about having the draft in Green Bay is what are they going to do with 240,000 people? Well, who says it has to be 240,000 people that come to the draft? Maybe there's an, an optimal number that's actually lower than that, that can still be good. Maybe you can still have an awesome experience with 100,000 people or 150,000 people. Maybe the Packers and Green Bay can handle 240,000 people. We don't really know that they can't. Just because they haven't doesn't mean they can't. And the infrastructure concerns, I, I think, may be a little bit overblown too. You can make things happen if you have to. I mean, Green Bay is not on the moon. The drive from Milwaukee to Green Bay is not as far as people make it seem. An hour-long commute from you know one point to another point five miles away in a big city is still an hour-long commute. And a 90-minute or longer, slightly longer drive from Milwaukee to Green Bay, just because it's whatever, 90 miles or 80 miles, whatever it is, it's, I mean, time-wise, it's not really that different. It People get too hung up on the distance from Milwaukee to Green Bay when it's more an issue of the time, and the time really isn't that big of a factor. If you're going to be, you know, having people driving, you're going to be on your phone and doing whatever anyway. It's not like all the NFL insiders, all the people covering the draft are <laughs> going to be hauling themselves from the airport to Green Bay. You can if you want, and if you're coming from from out of Wisconsin to cover the draft and you fly into Milwaukee... I would experience it, experience something different. The secret as to why a lot of media types like the, the events that they do, the sort of unknown secret, if you don't know how media types operate, is they tend to give a lot of credence to places that make it easy for them to drink. I know that shouldn't be a huge surprise, but 
the reason that everyone likes covering the combine in Indianapolis is because you've got the convention center in downtown Indianapolis, and you don't even have to really go outside to get to bars and restaurants in downtown Indy. They've done a good job of building the entire downtown around this convention center that makes it easy to get (laughs) just to food and, you know, places you can drink. And NFL reporters and all really sports reporters, this is not, this should not be a controversial statement. I've known a lot of them. I was a sports reporter for a brief period a long time ago. They're lazy and they like food and drink. And if you make it easy for them to be lazy and get to places they can eat and drink, they're going to say good things about where you are. And the worry, I I know this is true because no one is going to come out and say this, but I know this is true. The reason people get hung up on the draft being in Green Bay is they're not sure they're going to be able to get food and alcohol easily. And I can tell you for certain that is not going to be a problem at the NFL draft. People just think that it's a rural town and it's going to be hard to get things to eat and drink. It's not going to be a problem. If you are a Packers fan, and you probably are listening to the show, you know this is true. You will be tripping over food. It may not be, you know, like ultra high-end cuisine, like, you know, some international cities like New York or, you know, Dallas or Las Vegas are going to offer, but it's, it's going to be good. And there are some pretty dynamic tailgating chefs out there too. And it's going to be, it's going to be a big party. I think it could be really great. It could also be really cold, which would be a problem for a different reason, but you can't control everything. My dream scenario would be for the NFL to do the draft like a concert at Lambeau Field. Like when you have a big stadium concert and you have the, the, the stage take up one end of the, of the field or of the, yeah, the field of the playing surface. And then people can either be on the, the floor of the stadium or in the, the seats. Ideally, I think that that would be what I would love to see. I don't think there's any chance that's what they're going to do. They'll probably set it up in the, in the Lambeau field parking lot or something like that. But it, it could be really, really cool. And I think it's an opportunity to do something different with the draft because it, even if they're moving it around it, at least on TV, it's kind of samey. It can be a different experience and still be good. So I guess that would be how I'd sum up what I would want anybody who's talking about this or thinking about this to approach it as we look at this two years out. Anything can be good. And just because it's been different than other draft sites in the past doesn't mean it necessarily has to be bad. Two storylines coming out of OTAs that I think we should pay attention to. The first is Jordan Love. Jordan Love is going to be the big discussion point at every point of this season and every foreseeable season until we determine exactly what he is as a quarterback. But Jordan Love comes out today, and I think the general consensus is that he was a little bit up and down. There were some really good things. There were some not-so-good things. And I think the way to approach that is not just saying, well, that's how it is, but more to point, as we have a couple times in the recent past on the show, point back to how things were in 2008. And remember, Aaron Rodgers was not a sure thing when he took over for Brett Favre either. Did a little bit of digging into the newspapers.com archives today and was reading OTA coverage from the spring of 2008. Rob Domovsky, then of the Green Bay Press-Gazette, wrote this of the Packers' OTA practice in the May 30th, 2008 
Green Bay Press-Gazette. Let's just relive Aaron Rodgers' performance from that day. Here's what Domovsky had to say. Quote, Quarterback Aaron Rodgers had his ups and downs. He completed 11 of 15 passes during team periods that focused heavily on third down and red zone situations. He threw a 16-yard touchdown pass to Donald Lee. The pass split double coverage by safety Atari Bigby and linebacker Brady Papinga. He also threw a touchdown to to rookie Jordy Nelson, who beat rookie cornerback Pat Lee on a corner route. Rodgers, however, threw one interception and nearly had another picked off. Linebacker A.J. Hawk intercepted Rodgers, who was trying to throw an out to Ruvel Martin. Cornerback Tremont Williams had a good coverage on Martin, and Hawk jumped to the ball. Rodgers appeared to audible at the line of scrimmage and barely got the snap off, uh, got the snap before the play clock expired. Linebacker Desmond Bishop, who was playing middle linebacker with the number one defense in place of the absent Nick Barnett, got his hands on another pass but couldn't haul it in. If you change the names, it sounds very similar to what we saw and heard about Jordan Love today. There are going to be some ups and downs. There are going to be growing pains. And in the grand scheme of things, OTAs really don't mean all that much. Yes, it is nice that Jordan Love can be there practicing with everybody, but the reps here are so limited. The reps, it it's mostly mental stuff. It's mostly just, it's almost like a walkthrough. Uh, we, we talked about on this show in the past, the idea of practicing practice, learning what you have to do to go through life as an NFL football player. I think that's mainly the real value of OTAs, which is why they're voluntary and which is why you see a lot of the veterans not showing up at all, because they know what they have to do. They know what it, it takes to, to get the job done as an NFL football player. A lot of these guys are young and they don't. And so being there as a part of OTAs allows them to do that. And love is going to grow through some growing pains with them. But I think the growing pains are kind of the point. I think there's a real advantage to have love kind of growing with these guys at the same time. And, and as he grows and they all learn together, things are going to get better. That's where you saw Aaron Rodgers back in 2008. You saw him trying to target Jordy Nelson. You saw him working with Ruvel Martin. You saw him throwing a touchdown pass to Donald Lee. And yes, you saw him getting intercepted by A.J. Hawk. You can read this little section, by the way, on my Twitter page, at John Meerdink, J-O-N-M-E-E-R-D-I-N-K. I really don't tweet all that much. I just have turned more into an observer on that site. It just doesn't it rewards things that I'm not interested in, in doing a whole lot. But it's fun to tweet out things like that from time to time, and maybe we'll try to do more stuff like that as we, we dig further into the archives of you know, newspapers and stuff. Uh, you can find some fun things to talk about, if nothing else. And boy, as an aside, it's fun to remember that list of names from, 2000 late, from 2008. Donald Lee, Atari Bigby, Brady Papinga, Jordy Nelson, Pat Lee, A.J. Hawk, Ruvel Martin, Tremont Williams... Desmond Bishop, Nick Barnett, just speed running a game of let's remember some guys, right? Those are some guys to remember. And to the guy who responded by saying, uh, you know, just to call one guy out here, what's his name? I can't find the name, doesn't matter. Uh, The point of the tweet was somebody responded saying uh, that Nick Barnett deserved a little bit more credit for his time in Green Bay, probably should have made uh, a Pro Bowl during his time with the Packers or or even with the Bills. I think that's probably true. Uh, Nick Barnett was, I think, an underrated player during his time in Green Bay. And it's kind of funny that a guy like A.J. Hawk might distract from who he was a little bit as a player too, uh, being a high draft pick, uh, maybe garnering a, garnering a little bit more attention because of where he played in college and stuff. And I wonder if that may have contributed to it at all. 
but just looking at that list of names, you see some guys there that emerged as as longtime great players. Of course, Rodgers, but Jordy Nelson. The cornerstones of those kinds of building blocks may be in place already in Green Bay. And I think that's the really interesting thing about where the Packers are right now. We get to see those those pieces emerge or not emerge over the next couple of years as we head into the uh, Jordan Love era emerging from our time with Aaron Rodgers. The second big thing from OTAs was from cornerback Eric Stokes, who spoke with reporters about his foot injury, which I think was initially thought to be an ankle injury uh, back in November of last year. Uh, he left the the game against the Detroit Lions, the Week 9 game against the Lions, uh, after playing just 10 snaps or so on defense. Turns out his injury was, I think, even more severe than the already severe injury that we were led to believe that it was. Quoting Rob Domofsky, not 2008 Rob Domofsky, 2003 Rob Domofsky, uh, he writes that Stokes said he had surgery on his knee and foot. They were done at the same time after his November injury. He had a Liz Frank injury and a plate inserted in his foot. He said he finally started running a couple of weeks ago and believes he get, he'll get his speed back. So the meniscus injury, not all that uncommon, uh, just some, some tissue in your knee, varying degrees of severity there. And I don't think Stokes went into the full description of what the severity was, but it just reading between the lines, it doesn't sound like it was great. Um, if it was combined with a, a foot or ankle injury, multiple joint injury at one time seems like a pretty bad deal. The other injury there, the Liz Frank injury, or maybe Liz Franck injury, because it's named after a French doctor, uh, worked with Napoleon. Um, but that is a uh, both a break and a displacement of a bone in your foot, and I think that is an accurate description of it. I have heard, actually, as a follow-up to last week's episode, have heard from a couple uh, sports medicine people. I haven't gotten back to you yet. Thank you for your patience. Your responses on the ACL stuff from last week were great. I want to be in touch with you about uh, maybe getting a little bit more insight on that. Maybe we can ask you about Eric Stokes as well. But it is... It's a serious injury, and needing a plate in your foot is is never a good thing, and it is scary to hear him saying just he believes he'll get his speed back, and he just started running a couple of weeks ago. You see why Matt LaFleur said earlier this offseason that they were hopeful that he would be ready for, like, week one. It may, you see why that may be an issue here, because although it is only May, Three months from now, it's going to be, it's it's May 23rd right now, 90 days away from it being August 23rd. If you're not full go by then, can you really even consider him for the start of the of the regular season? I mean, we're 100-ish days away from the start of the, the football season. A, a little bit more than that, but within spitting distance of 100 days from the start of football season, and he's just starting to run now. If he loses any speed or if he isn't able to play at full speed, what is Eric Stokes even as a player? Because he's never really been a technician. That's never really been his game. It's all about the athleticism. If you lose a step as a guy who relies primarily on athleticism, what even are you as a player? I think that's a little bit concerning, maybe more than a little bit. And getting that insight now is valuable, but should make us, I think, a little bit concerned about an important player heading into year three coming off a major injury. Hopefully the news is better on Rashawn Gary and his continued recovery. We haven't heard anything that would suggest that it's not. Anything other than, you know, right on schedule. Rashawn Gary just 
looking at who he has been as a player in his NFL career to date, just seems like the sort of guy who's going to be absolutely all in on his rehab and everything he needs to do, which is, you know, you wish guys didn't have to do that, but it's fun to see those sorts of things. Guys just really focusing and, and working on, you know, getting better. And that's a, a fascinating things about thing about sports, for me at least, seeing what a elite athlete can do just in terms of recovery. Because it's, a, it's like a game unto itself. The things that you have to do and the ways that you have to prepare and the treatments you have to do. And there are winners and losers at it too. It's not all within your control, but guys who really get after it and, and do the things that they can control to their absolute maximum tend to have better outcomes or seem to have better outcomes. And it seems like Rashawn Gary is that kind of guy who's going to do absolutely everything he can to get back on the field and be even better than he was pre-injury. It, that's a win-win for him and the Packers because heading into a contract year, he stands to make a lot of money if he can if he can be the sort of player that he was prior to the ACL tear. What he, he ends up doing is going to be a fun part of this season. And I just hope he can come all the way back. And I hope that we get to see maximum performance Rashawn Gary either in 2023 or in 2024, or maybe somewhere in between there as he continues to come back from his ACL injury. In the meantime, that's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.